The following Agio-supported podcast is intended for informational and educational purposes only and is not intended as medical advice. Please speak with your healthcare professional before making any treatment decisions. The guests on today's show were paid to participate in this podcast. Welcome to ThalPals, the alpha-beta revolution. Whether you're a thalassemia patient, a caregiver, a partner, or provider, this podcast is meant for you. I'm your co-host, Dr. Kevin Kuo, the Alpha Beta Revolution, who strive to provide listeners with critical education, the latest scientific updates, and voices from the greater global community of people who are impacted by thalassemia. I'm joined today by my co-host, Larice Levine. Hello, Larice. Hi, Dr. Kuo. It's great to see you. Looks like it's just the two of us today. Let's get to know each other. Yeah, this is exciting. The first time I met you was our first podcast. And it's a rare and special occasion for me to be able to sit down with a hematologist when we don't have long lists of appointments or 10-minute timelines. So I'm excited to take this deeper dive and get to know you as a patient who sees countless specialties. And I know I'm a bit biased here, but I think hematologists have a special place. They're a special breed. I've never met a hematologist who wasn't kind, compassionate, caring, and just wants so much to change and have a special impact on their patient's life. But I want to know what made you choose the field of hematology, Dr. Quo. What brought you to that? First of all, Larissa, I want to say thank you for being so kind. Personally, I think that, you know, like begets like, meaning that when we choose our specialty as trainees, we tend to gravitate towards those who have very similar personality. And we go through a very rigorous interview process, in fact, multiple interviews to get to where we are. You can think about it as kind of like a sieve, right? Each time we do an interview, intervals of our training, it acts like a sieve and it streams us into a particular group. So I think that probably is the reason why when you meet hematologists, they have a certain personality. And to tell you the truth, I think all physicians are compassionate. It's just that we exhibit our compassionate different ways. But to go back to your original question, which is why I went into hematology, it's actually quite interesting in a sense that I actually chose hematology before I even choose medicine, in a sense that I myself have a congenital blood disorder. And because of that, when I was little. I went to the doctors a lot. Uh, Not as much as you, I'm pretty sure of that, but enough times to say that I had frequent interaction with the healthcare system. And I think is seeing how my parents were very uncertain all the time in terms of what would happen to me in the future. In fact, I think my grandma actually called me like one of those glass menagerie. Very fragile, exactly. And so because of that, I wanted to help others who, and I don't want them to feel the same, like how my parents felt, not knowing the future, not knowing how things are going to be, always, things are always in question. I want them to be able to live the life as they should, rather than being overwhelmed and consumed by the illness. What happened was that I had a choice at the end of undergrad. I thought about law school. I thought about doing a PhD. And then I thought about, you know what, because of what I have, I really want to do hematology. I know that in, t- in order to get there, I need to go through a few different trainings. I need to finish up my medical school. I need to do internal medicine. I looked at things and I thought, yeah, maybe, maybe I can get there. So I applied to medical school with the view that I want to do hematology. 
Then after going through all the rotations in medicine, I really like family medicine. I like how holistic things were. In fact, I did my family medicine rotation in the northern community in Canada. Pretty isolated. It was really challenging, but I really liked that. And I thought, well, you know what, is there a specialty where I can do that, but at the same time be a hematologist as well? So when I applied to internal medicine, that was what I had in mind. After I finished internal medicine, then I'm like, yeah, I really want to do hematology, but I actually don't want to do malignant hematology or cancer, simply because I feel like that sort of care is too episodic for me still. Even though as malignant hematologists, they have a long connection with the patients, but a lot of cancer, people die very quickly. And so the connection there is brief, in my view. I want something that sort of spans the lifespan. Knowing what I have, because it's congenital, I know I live with it, but it's not going to go anywhere because it's in my DNA. I chose to work with people with thalassemias and sickle cell and what we call congenital hemolytic anemia because I know that I will be able to see and meet with my patients over the lifespan. That's taking your journey and using it for the greater good, I always think. Using challenges from your own health and childhood and using that to help others, which I think is beautiful. Thanks, Larise. So Larise, let me flip it back to you then. As a patient, recognizing that many of us are trying to do good, but of course, hematologists also suffer burnout, like many other specialty. What would you have wanted to hear from your hematologist when you were younger, if you were able to rewind the clock? Yeah, we're winding the clock. I was just talking with a parent this morning, like chatting, who adopted a patient with Al or a child with Al. And she's so proactive and she really works on giving her child a voice, which I feel like times have changed and wish that the hematologist gave us information in general. I was, remember I saw him once a year. I was undertreated at a hemoglobin, like I said, in the past of 6.9, and it was basically just an annual check. And I remember getting my blood test, him checking me out, and then I was sent out of the room while my mom talked to him. And I wish, I, and I'm an information seeker. Mm-hmm. That's how I cope. I want information. I love science. I love medicine. So I wish that I was there for that. I realize that if a child isn't part of the conversation, they shouldn't be in the room. But I wish that I was part of the conversation and that I got more information like what thalassemia is. This is before. So we relied on doctors and encyclopedias and medical books. And I didn't have, I only had my doctor. So I wish that I just had information. I remember my mom saying that she asked if there was any support groups or other patients. And he said, I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't introduce her to that community or anyone in it. He was mostly an oncologist, so I'm not sure if he didn't know or just thought it was a bad idea. And also, thalassemia was a lot different. People were dying young. But I wish I had met someone before I was 25 because I thought I was alone. And I wish somehow he could have told my parents not to feel guilty. There's a sense of guilt that parents who have children with thalassemia have. And I noticed it with my own parents. I don't think they've ever forgiven themselves for something they didn't mean to do to me. They didn't know they carried, my dad was told he didn't have the trait. My mom did and they felt guilty and I feel like that bogged them down their whole lives. That was hard for me because I knew that was a burden to them. 
Mm-hmm. And I see that with adoptive families don't have that burden of guilt. So I wish that would have been discussed. Just don't feel guilty. Treat your child as a child first. I couldn't do a lot of things. So. I think that's a very important message to listeners to hear. I'm sure that many listeners out there are parents, and I'm so glad you spoke about that. Another point that really resonated with me was you talking about how your parents were seeking information. And I remember how you want to seek information. I remember as a child, uh, my dad would take me to the university's research library, and he would be looking up books after books about my disease, but not having necessarily the medical background to do so. While he did gain a lot of knowledge about my disease, there was also a lot of misunderstanding as well. So I can see that and I can see the desperation, right? I think that's the only way I can describe it. Did he let you look at the, were you with him? Did he let you look at the information? He did, yeah. I was sitting right beside him. Don't understand most of it. Yeah, but I knew what he was doing, yeah. Okay. How did your mom deal with your diagnosis? Was it, he was information seeking, was she the same or? She was the same as well, yes. Whereas my dad was going to the library, was looking for more authoritative information. My mom was seeking out information from other sources, from the media at that time, but which wasn't a lot actually. Right. Interesting. Yeah, I think the parent journey is very different from the patient journey. I often think as the parent journey is more difficult because now I have a child and I'd much rather have thalassemia than him, than watch him go through it. So you're a dad, you know how it is when your kids are sick. Exactly. Yep. Yeah, it is. Absolutely. Agios is a biopharmaceutical company that's fueled by connections with patient communities, healthcare professionals, partners, and each other. Building on these connections and the company's unmatched leadership in the field of cellular metabolism, Agios is pioneering therapies of genetically defined diseases, a broad group of rare and more common diseases that are typically severe and life-threatening. Near term, Agios is focusing on hemolytic and acquired anemias, including thalassemia, pyruvate kinase, or PK deficiency, and sickle cell disease. To learn more, visit agios.com. That's A-G-I-O-S dot com. Coming from a healthcare practitioner's point of view, I really want to know from you is, what would you have wished the doctors done differently for you? I wish that I was put on transfusions because I was so, so sick all the time and weak. And I think that caused so many problems, like just doing PE and not being able to go on walks. We lived on a hill. I couldn't walk up that hill. It was really challenging. So I wish I was, and now I know that blood transfusion brings another set of challenges, but I feel like most of my health problems have been from resulting from not getting blood and severe anemia, like the heart failure. It wasn't from iron. My heart failure was from anemia. And my quality of life just skyrocketed when I started getting blood. The second thing I wish, I broke my back in high school. I was in a bad accident. And I broke my back and both feet. And a year ago, I got my medical records from them and I was reading them and they were debating surgery, but they didn't do it because they didn't think I would live very long. And back pain is my number one complaint. It's horrible. I've had it since I was like 25 and I'm considering spinal reconstruction next year, which is a huge surgery, but 
primarily because of that. Mm -hmm. So I feel like they wrote me off and my parents didn't question. That was a different time. So I wish they did the surgery because doing that at 17 is way different than doing that at 50. My bones are different because of thalassemia. So the combination of the accident plus thalassemia has created a really bad back. The doctor said it was like the worst back he's ever seen, except for a 98-year-old woman. It ties in because I, I think they thought I wouldn't live long and not trusting that science and medicine improves, and it has. So if they did it, it would have been nice. You're absolutely right. Reflecting back, it was thought that people with thalassemia intermediate did not need transfusions right. or did not need any treatment because it was thought that having a survivable hemoglobin was sufficient. But obviously, it's a huge impact on quality of life. And I think that has changed a lot because if we examine clinical trials in thalassemia these days, there is a lot of focus in patient reported outcomes, the quality of life. So I think it resonates with what you were speaking about in your experience. But knowing that back then we didn't have this information, we didn't know that transfusion would have been life-changing for you, how would you have liked the doctor to convey that information? At the time, I didn't even really know that was an option he didn't consider until learning. And I don't resent the doctors or my parents. I always remind myself it was them all doing the best during that time with the information they had. And I actually loved my doctor. I, he's deceased now, but I have respect for him. It just was a different time and they didn't know. I was born in 72, blood wasn't as safe and mm -hmm. there was a lot of repercussions. There wasn't chelators. So I understand that decision. I just didn't understand. We weren't communicating. So I guess it would just be good to say, hey, this exists, but I'm not gonna do it because. I could have handled that information. I know every child is different, but I clearly really wanted the information. Even now, I don't expect hematologists to, if they don't ever see patients, how are they going to know? They can't be specialists in everything. And I know that sometimes doctors are on social media really criticized or for not knowing more, but it's like, how can they? They're human, first of all, and there's so much to learn about the body. And if you never see a thal patient and it was a paragraph in medical school, it's them being willing to get the information. So I don't resent the doctor for not knowing. I just wish that he shared those things with me. Likewise, doctors today, if they don't know it, as a patient, I'm cool with that. Just say, I'm willing to learn. When I moved to Syracuse, the doctor was an oncologist. I was his first and only thal patient. He said, I'll work with you. And the doctor I have today, I'm his first and only thal patient. And my question was, will you let me be part of the team? Can I help drive the car? Let's learn together. And if they don't have egos and they're willing to learn from me and me from them and them from other specialists, that's all I really want. And I've also had doctors, I had a doctor in Seattle who absolutely refused to ever talk to Dr. Coates. She wouldn't talk to my specialist mm -hmm. and didn't want to collaborate. So that relationship didn't work out. But I just want open communication and collaboration. I don't expect someone to know it all. Those are very great points. I was thinking, you know what? There's always this temptation in not saying, I don't know. It's hard. And it takes courage to say, I don't know. And I just see thalassemia. We're still scraping the surface right now, to tell the truth. E even with our understanding of the molecular mechanisms of thalassemia, there's still so many unanswered questions in terms of how it really works. And then Alpha thalassemia. Well, let's not even talk about alpha, right? We have even less understanding of alpha. So we're just at the beginning. Yeah.
and think of how far we've come and we're still at the beginning. It's so much. And I think when I say to a doctor, respect the answer, I don't know. It's just let's learn together. Mm -hmm. I want to teach. I want to be a part of it. And I think it's admirable. And I think patients, as patients, we have to be willing to say, I don't expect you to know it all. Will you learn with me? Because there's so much. So speaking of that, back to your field of medicine and your career, what are the most challenging aspects of being a hematologist, taking care of patients or anything? What's the most challenging and what's the most gratifying? To me, I think the most gratifying is the daily interaction with patients, sitting down with them, talking to them, understand the progress that they have made, that they have taken, especially when I see successes in clinical trials. I, I do run a lot of clinical trials, so a lot of my patients are in clinical trials, and I just love it when I'm like, wow, this is really working for you. It's just amazing. And then to see how they brighten up and say, yeah, you know, I'm really happy that I'm on this, or this treatment, or that treatment. So that's the most gratifying for me. I think the most challenging I don't know if it's the most challenging, but it's the one that I, the part I really hate is the paperwork. Oh my God, I'm drowning in paperwork right now and emails. I get around like 300 emails a day and I just can't handle it. It drives me insane. And the worst thing is that majority of these things can be automated. It's just that we don't have the facilities and we don't have the ability to automate a lot of these simple decision-making process that I wish that we, we have, because otherwise I think it will make my life much easier. I live in Canada, so I don't have to deal with insurance company as much, but we still do. We still have to deal with, and that big insurance company is called the government. And when they reject coverage of certain medications, and then you got to explain to them. But I know I'm speaking out, no filter right now, okay? I'm just going to tell you right now what I'm talking about. But do I really have to give you that much justification? Really, put a stop to this. There is ample of literature out there. I've already provided that to you. Do I need to explain more? Can you just come and live in my patient's shoes for one day? Just be in my patient's shoes for one day. And then you would see why he or she requires this medication rather than having to me sending email communication back and forth like 10 times. I'm so sorry. I see that because my insurance declines to everything regardless, at least five times. And eventually my doctor has to like step in and I think they're busy saving lives and they have to fight an insurance company. Larice, in part, I understand why insurance companies do this. They want to do the due diligence. They don't want to just say, oh, just because the doctor says so, then this is what we should do. Understandable. But it comes to a certain point when you're like, this is a rare disease. We have evidence, but it's limited evidence. And we're using the best of the available evidence plus clinical judgment to arrive at this decision-making process. How much time do you think you spend on paperwork and how much time do you think you spend on patient care? Do you think it's about the same? It's about the same. And that's the scary part, right? <laughs> is that if, as I said before, I love seeing my patients. If I can just see my patients with the paperwork, I'd do it forever. I don't know how we can change this because I know healthcare is not really working for the system isn't working for doctors or patients or anybody. It's mired in just so much paperwork and red tape and challenges, and I'm not sure how to fix that. Mm -hmm. It seems like an overwhelming problem, and most of my doctors say the same thing as you. Yeah. Paperwork. So I have another question for you. 
you're a doctor, you're a caregiver, you're a dad. So how do you take care of yourself? Sometimes I find that doctors and nurses are the worst patients. They don't often take care of themselves. Now, I'm not saying that you are, but that's been my experience. Do you do anything to take care of yourself? So first of all, I'm going to take the fifth in terms of whether I'm taking care of myself or not. But having said that, I feel that my family, we were a very tight family, me, my wife, and my daughter. And I feel that we take care of each other. By taking care of each other, I feel that's the one way of taking care of myself. I enjoy my weekends when I'm not on call, get completely disconnected. Sometimes people still are able to reach me. And I do take those calls because I know that's like super important, especially in the field that I work in, right? It's rare. Most people don't necessarily have the expertise. So people are desperate, right? When, especially if there is an emergency situation, a lot of clinicians ask me questions on the weekend. And so I do take the calls sometimes. I try very hard not to. And I enjoy spending time with my family. I think that's one way for me to unwind. What are some of your favorite activities to do with? Hiking. Hiking in the, in the summer, snowshoeing in the winter. Yeah, we, we love going around snowshoeing, yeah. I love the quiet of the snow. Yes. The, the, just hear the crunch. Yeah. We like traveling as well. So whenever we get a chance, we just get away for the weekend. Nice. I think that's nice that taking care of each other is taking care of yourself because that's really true. In Canada, I'm sure it's so beautiful, the areas where you get to explore. It's nice. Virgin snow is amazing. Just seeing, yeah. yeah flatland of just snow, nothing else, especially on a lake. If you can walk on a lake, it's really something to walk on a lake. You talked about touching the surface with thalassemia. Where do you hope to see healthcare for thalassemia in the next decade? I think accessibility is key. Mm -hmm. We have to remember that majority of patients herald from areas and regions where there is huge inequity and healthcare disparity. While we are making leaps and bounds in terms of creating new medicine, especially around gene therapy, we have to remember that majority of patients are still not able to access these transformative healthcare solutions. I think being able to create a cost-effective means of delivering thalassemia care to these patients are key. And that will be the challenge in the next 50 years, especially with global warming, because global warming is going to entail human migration. And if we think about where majority of thalassemic patients live, they live around the equatorial region, right, or near, near the equator. Right. So you got Mediterranean, the Middle East, South Asia, Southeast Asia, where malaria used to be endemic. And so you can imagine that with global warming, there will be huge migratory patterns. Right. These are so-called climate migrants. And where are they going to go? They're going to go to areas of the world where it's less impacted by climate, such as Northern Europe, East Asia, North America. And we will beginning to see these challenges grow. My clinic has grown huge numbers. We have almost 500 patients with thalassemia right now. I think we're about to surpass that as well by the end of next year. Oh my goodness. Yeah, and that's just Toronto. I just imagined not only the amount of patients, but the paperwork. <laughs> yeah. I think delivering, being able to deliver healthcare to all these places, not just in Canada or United States or in Europe, but to areas where thalassemia truly impacts will be very important. Loris, I just could not believe that we're able to fill the entire session in such a short period of time. And those are just 
amazing answers coming out of you. I'm so glad that the listeners are able to listen to your insight as a patient with thalassemia. And I'm sure the parents out there are also very appreciative of what you just said. Thank you, Dr. Quone. Thanks for being so open and candid as well. It was really wonderful getting to know you. And despite where we are or who we are, we're all working towards the same goals, which is amazing. And that's creating better lives for people touched with thalassemia and their families. That's all for today's episode. Again, I'm your host, Dr. Kevin Quo, and I'd like to personally thank you for listening to ThalPals, The Alpha Beta Revolution. Don't forget to hit that follow button in your favorite podcast apps so you don't miss an episode. Share the show with members of the thalassemia community. ThalPals, The Alpha Beta Revolution is made possible by Agios Pharmaceuticals, Inc. Visit agios.com to learn more. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on ThalPals, The Alpha Beta Revolution. Bye, everybody.